This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Holding Pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> pronounces. yes. Pronounces. No surprises, mm. I'm guessing. That's yes. going to be... Anyway, hello, Robert hello, Hollis. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello, hello, Charles, Victor, Ludora. <laughs> and this is our 50th, this is our 50th episode. <gasps> is it really? You're right, mm. it's a very exciting moment. It's our 50th 50. episode of your 50th win. Sorry, I wasn't clear about this. <laughs> or is it the same thing? Uh, no. <laughs> it's the 50th episode, which is a half century. It's rather good. It's good, isn't That's it? That's quite impressive. That's yes. gone really fast. It has gone really fast, hasn't it? But everything goes fast. Time's winged chariot. Yes. Galloping away. Each of us learnt 50 subjects. Well, How many of those facts do you think you remember? I've forgotten 49. <laughs> yes. Know. It's very random what you remember. Yeah. It's not the big stuff. No. But it is, I notice it in conversation now. Mm. Someone will say something and I go, oh, did you know that da 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 And then five minutes later, as they look ever more glazed, I realise that perhaps I've shared, overshared a little bit. You're it's trying to win. this programme, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, every conversation, you feel like, I've got ten minutes to, <laughs> to I win feel this I one. Have, I feel I have myself cleaved the oceans, the briny oceans of the law for Islands with the Vikings <gasps> in their long ships. Wouldn't you Very say that, Charles? I've learned a lot about the Vikings and about weird societies and people from yes. you. And sort of gruesome, a lot of gruesome things. Lots of gruesome executions. I'm very gruesome light. And actually this episode, well, I mean, there's one minor bit of I don't blood. think we've had a single <laughs> of our 50 episodes, one in which some method of execution would not crop up at some no. point. Well, I'm not execution today, but it's, a, let's just say, a nasty wound. Right. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Do you have any episodes that spring to mind or topics that spring to mind, yours or each other's? I mm. think that... Panacea Society yes, that was the most me. remarkable one because obviously there's lots of subjects I don't know about, but that was completely ridiculously weird and wonderful. Mm. I liked cutlery. Yes. Yeah, it was good. And I also really liked your accounts of your battles with your nemesis in the 
roller derby. Yes, <laughs> yes. the so, brutal side of cats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the unknown side. Yes, maybe that should come out more often. Yes, and I liked your pub names as well, because I keep thinking of them as I drive past something. Right at the beginning, you talked about pub names and pub signs. And what about the ones you did? I did one on falconry, actually, and I really enjoyed yeah. that because it had a Norwegian angle. It had lots going on. What do you remember as the most surprisingly fun one of your own? Gosh. Oh, I like unicorns, actually, that, lovely, that yeah. has so much more of an interesting history than I thought they did. I yes. thought it was just going to be a much more modern invention. Yeah. I like I that. I can't remember a single one I've done, apart from last week's. Madeira wine. <laughs> yes. Fascinating. <laughs> yes. That Absolutely was good. Fasc- actually, I was fascinated by Madeira wine. Yeah. You know? It's the connectivity, the age of exploration. It's what's happening in this shift from... Europe to the New World. That fascinates me. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Like your Vikings, you see, going out in their longships, Kat. Yes, absolutely. Exploring pretty much everywhere. What would drive people to sail to what they thought would be the edge of the world and sail their caravel off the edge to plunge into, you know... So brave. What does it take? Brave or desperate or a bit of both. Do you think it's profit? Yeah, you think give it a go. promise and the grass is greener and just knowing and having seen those who come back... And seeing what they come back but with. Somebody was the first. Yes. Right? Awesome. Well, mm. well, people have been doing this for ever, and I think seafaring goes back such a long way, doesn't it? And the narrative, of course, presents you, doesn't it, with the first person to do something. But were they the first person? Oh, oh well, that leads, I can lead on now <gasps> oh. to Ooh. the Wright brothers. Oh. Okay, well, yeah, and, go for it. Well, it's just the perfect segue from Richard. And in fact, we know they were the first people to invent the aeroplane. But that wasn't established for a very long time. It was disputed. The Wright brothers I find so interesting because <laughs> there were a lot of, there were four Wright brothers, in fact, but only two that we know. But they all had these very extraordinary names. Reuchlin, Lorin, and then, of course, the ones we know, Wilbur and Orville. And they were given these names. Their father was a bishop. Not a bishop as in a sort of hierarchy such as the one you were part of, Richard. It was the United Brethren in Christ, so more a Methodist type of thing. And he was a traveling bishop. All the sort of Midwest states, really, he wandered around. And they had a rather unsettled childhood. And where we really think about them is Dayton, Ohio. They're known locally as the bishop's kids, wherever they live, or the bishop's boys. And this is important Their father and their mother, who died when they were quite young, they taught their children that the world's a very evil and untrustworthy place. People are bad news. And the only thing you can rely on is family. Even that. (laughs) (laughs) But that is the backbone of their adventures, you know, where other people, this was a time of questioning science and development. And when times got tough, these two brothers always had each other to depend on. And their sister, actually, Catherine, the right sister, who we will come across towards the end. They were named after a couple of very important figures in the, what we would consider the Methodist community. Uh, they were brought up in an abolitionist, Freemason, temperance-loving household. And they were quite sort of quiet and introverted, the two brothers, rather different in in many ways. Wilbur was a more book-reading, studious chap, and Orville was more impulsive and optimistic. But they were different in their own way. So Wilbur was potentially going to go to college at Yale, and he had a very nasty accident 
when he was aged 18, he was hit in the face by a hockey stick in a very bad way, damaged his face very badly and his teeth. And he got depression. This is relevant to the story because during his depression and during his time of recovery, he spent a lot of time reading. Meanwhile, Orville had been a more impulsive, optimistic chap, as I say, and he came up with new inventions, but he dropped out of high school. So both of them didn't really have the education you might put behind the great inventors of their age. But they were intrigued by flying. And last week I talked about Werner von Braun and how he was given a telescope at the right time and the interest he got from a book. Well, the two Wright brothers as boys were given this extraordinary toy helicopter when they were just uh, young lads. And it was made of cork, bamboo and paper and powered by a rubber band. And they played with this endlessly. And it's interesting when you're looking at these pioneers of flight, how on one side you've got the Wright brothers who are a byword for success. And in fact, the man who invented that little toy they had was a French son of a French admiral called Alphonse Penaud. And he probably could have beaten them to it. You know, he was alive from 1850 to 1880. And he designed a clever full-sized aircraft. Also a thing called the Planophore, which was a, a model plane, which he got to fly for 11 seconds at the Tuileries in 1871. But he couldn't get the funding, the backing that was needed to progress his inventions. And sadly, he, he committed suicide. Ooh. But we have the two Wright brothers their brains inflamed with the idea that this is all possible. And they decide to get involved, first of all, in other things. But they always have this intrigue in the possibility of human flight. They are printers to start with. They even have their own newspaper, which is known as the Evening Item. There was a time of in the Midwest of an enormous sort of plethora of newspapers, and they couldn't make it survive. They then did one called the Tatler, not connected to the Society magazine in England. It was for a black readership. And then they went on to do something which I suppose if we know a thing about the Wright brothers as a cliche sort of fact, it is that they were bicycle manufacturers and bicycle sellers. What happened in the early 19, very early 1890s, early 1900s, was the bicycle became a craze in the Midwest. And it was based on the safety bicycle that had caught on in England two equal-sized wheels, and people really got into these in a big way. And they had a shop which rented and sold these things and could help correct them. But then they decided to invent their own standard of bicycle. They probably produced 300 of these, of which five still survive today. Mm -hmm. Imagine having a Wright brother bicycle. It'd be quite a collector's item. But they were more interested, really, in the idea of human flight. They were convinced it was possible when people weren't. And they knew, too, that a pilot would be needed. They had several things you had to combat before it was even possible. And they worked out that they had to combat all four of them successfully before they could really get to the point where an aeroplane could fly. They needed a set of lifting surfaces, or wings as we know it. They needed a method of balancing the aircraft. They needed a, a way of controlling it, and they needed a means of propulsion. So they worked from the basis of what are the necessities, and then try and crack them. So they did the first thing with the wings. They realized that there were sort of various mathematical ideas out there as to what you needed to make things move through the air, but they tended to be wrong. 
they realised that instead of just having set wings, you needed to warp them. So they did this procedure called wing warping. So to have the wing tilted at an angle so that it could levitate slightly. First of all, they tried their theories of flight on a kite and they managed to successfully get their kite to take off and do things that would be incorporated into their plane. And the only witnesses to their kite success were a group of schoolboys, schoolboys who were seeing the first step towards success in 1899. They then had the first piloted glider built in a few weeks. Everything took quite a short time with them Mm. when they set their mind to it in 1900. And they flight tested it at Kitty Hawk, which has become synonymous with the Wright brothers' story. Kitty Hawk in North Carolina on the coast. The name Kitty Hawk comes from the Native American words for where you go to kill geese. And it was because it was a good place for flying. That's why the geese had been there in ancient times. It was a sandy shore of North Carolina with very good breezes and also soft sand to land on. So you weren't crunching up your thing during its tests. They managed to do two minutes of free gliding in 1900. The glider they piloted then was the most advanced aircraft yet created. If you think that's only 124 years ago, it's extraordinary what's happened in that time. And then in 1901, they they realized that to get the thing airborne, if they were going to progress to an aeroplane, they needed a, a wind tunnel. So they built their own large wind tunnel, which worked. And they used it for the creation for the next two years of various models. In 1902, they had their third glider with a thinner airfoil and and larger and narrower wings, a vertical rudder, elliptical-shaped forward elevator. And that started to edges further and further towards their grand production. Now, 1903, this is when they decided to build their first actual aeroplane, and they realised the key by this stage was propulsion. They had to build their own, and they built an engine. They got a chap, one of their mechanics who'd worked with them for a couple of years, called Charlie Taylor. He set about building an engine that we would have eight horsepower they realised they needed, and they needed it to generate 41 kilograms of thrust to achieve a minimum speed of 23 miles an hour or 37 kilometers an hour to keep it up. And he did this within six weeks. And in 1903, the Wright Flyer, as it was known, made four flights at Kitty Hawk, the best one covering 852 feet or nearly 300 meters in just under a minute. The first heavier-than-air-powered aircraft to make a sustained control flight with a pilot aboard was what they managed to achieve with that plane. And they walked from where they were testing the plane to Kitty Hawk itself to send a telegram to their father to say they had done it. Wow. And so in 1904, they got permission, the two brothers, to test their creations in a local cow pasture that's known as Huffman Prairie. And that's at Dayton, Ohio. And that's where they built a hangar and began experimenting with their second powered airplane. And on the 20th October 1904, they managed to go for 1 minute 36 seconds. The distance was over 4,000 feet, over 1,200 meters. And in October 1905, things really got interesting. They managed to have a, a working steering system. And Wilbur did 30 circuits of a field in 39 minutes, covering 24 and a half miles or nearly 40 kilometers. Then they patented their designs in 1908. They managed to persuade the US government and the French financiers to back them. And they did their first public flights. Wilbur was the pilot in 1908. And they then traveled to Europe 
and they became international celebrities overnight. They took their invention to France, Italy, and Germany and demonstrated their planes. In fact, Wilbur in 1908 made 200 flights in Europe. So they were incredible heroes, and they were just in time with their invention to help in World War I. Yeah. I mean, we forget, you know, America had tiny resources, military resources at the time of the First World War happening, but they did manage to train the first three men who would, I suppose, in a military way in flying that America had ever had. I'm not sure this is right, but my grandmother, not with us any longer, but she remembers having a ride in an aeroplane at Northampton Racecourse when she was a little girl before the First World War. Goodness. Is that conceivable, that there could have been someone doing demonstration flights in Northampton in, say, 1911 or 1912 or 1913? It's possible. It was incredibly dangerous then. I mean, Five bob. Yeah. Five shillings, a lot of money. I would have thought possibly more after First World War. But, I mean, so the Wright brothers stopped flying. They stopped their team in 1911 after 16 months of operation. They had lost, between 1910 and 1912, they lost nine of their team members in flying accidents. Were they piloting uh, their planes? Mm, and it was so dangerous. And obviously, once you're down, you're down. And then we have their own things going wrong. I mean, you know, we look back on these people as huge successes, but they had day-to-day -day worries. They had people battling their patents and people uh, they were trying to pursue for more investment who weren't coming forward. And aged just 45 in 1912, Wilbur Wright died from a combination of business and legal wrangles giving him exhaustion and a uh, brush with typhoid fever. They both died quite young. I mean, Orville died of a heart attack in 1948 and neither man married. So there's no descendants of those two. Neither had children. But what I like is the fact that there is a sort of wider Wright family. And I mentioned her very briefly. And my favorite fact is the Wright sister, not the Wright brothers. I mentioned Catherine. She was incredibly outgoing and charming. And she was very close to her brothers. She was the primary caregiver from the age of 15 after her mother died. She managed the household while they pushed ahead with their bicycle shop. And she looked after, when Orville had a, a near-fatal accident, actually, in 1908, she nursed him back from the jaws of death. And in 1909, she accompanied them to Europe, helping to gain them funding and to promote their sales. And they were huge celebrities in Europe. They were each awarded the Légion d'honneur. So in 1912, after Wilbur died, she became an officer of the Wright Company until it was sold by Orville. She was very pioneering in her outlook. She was from a middle-class background, but she was determined to have a job, and she became a teacher, which was quite avant-garde almost at that time when middle-class ladies were meant to stay at home. And she was an activist, a suffragette. She was president of the Dayton's Young Women's League. She did three flights. She's probably one of the first women to be in an aeroplane. She did three flights with her brother Wilbur. And I think she's the most interesting. She didn't get married till relatively late in life, but she was almost the quiet driving force. People said, oh, she probably helped with the calculations of the plane. She was adamant she didn't do that. But what she did do definitely was to support her two brothers to their great successes and carry it on after they both died. Barbara Cartland. She flew, didn't she? Didn't she introduce some kind of method of gliding formation or something to the air ministry? Entirely unexpected really? thing. Really? Barbara Cartland, who you would not, you know, a great thing with Pekingese and a big pink hat and everything and <laughs> amazing makeup, but apparently she was quite significant in gliding. Yeah. Huh. Well, women, you know, it was an interesting time because... Uh, Aviatrix. Well, 
yes, aviatrix or aviatrices uh, <laughs> at this time were, you know, it was a time when the suffragettes were eventually succeeding. And it was seen originally as a man's world. But I mean, no, it was soon taken over by both genders. I think we have a comment from our disembodied voice. Yeah, just to add that after they did receive the patent for their aircraft, they then sort of squirreled away for a while and they got into a bit of a sticky situation where essentially other people were hot on their heels claiming, oh, look at all this incredible work I've done with my own aircraft, that people were quite doubtful of their talent. So when they first showed off their kind of abilities, it was a way to sort of shut everyone up and say, well, look, we've done it first and we've done it better. The other thing that's really interesting about is how quickly the technology developed. Unbelievable. You think about my grandmother's lifetime, if she was right in recollecting having got up in a plane whenever that was, but in the early years of the 20th century, and she mm. lived into the age of moon landing. Extraordinary, yes. isn't yeah, it? Amazing. Yeah, amazing. I suppose, I'm afraid, two world wars probably sped it along a bit. Nothing yeah. like war to Technology. stimulate a bit of R&D, right? Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Okay, so from that, go on to a completely different topic. <laughs> and I'm going to be talking about crowns. Crowns. Now, I feel a bit like... My interest may be slightly different to someone like yours, Richard. I'm, I just want the bling. Yeah, you probably just want the bling and the, yeah. yeah. So maybe you can fill me in because I started looking into that and went way back down into the sort of early origins. Because I just thought, well, how did this idea begin? How did you get to a point where putting a blingy circle of metal on your head, showing you off as being the head of an entire mm. kingdom, mm. what's that come from and where do you start that whole sort of idea custom. and custom, oh. really, which I thought was a really interesting one. So I tried to go back and look at the earliest crowns and the oldest crowns again. The oldest, it seems, archaeologically dates back to the Copper Age, which is 4,000 to 3,300 BC in Israel, actually, in Judean desert. And it was found in a hoard called the Nahal Mishar hoard. And it's a single crown made of copper with little sort of vultures and doors or doorways on it, which is a slightly odd bit of decoration. Found in possibly earlier crowns like that in funerary context quite often. So we don't know if that's got to do with a burial or whether it's the person who had them in life. But there's some old ones. There's another one from India, 4,000-year-old copper crown, again, from the Indus Valley. If you go even further back and you sort of think about headgear that sort of mark someone out because clearly what these are doing is they're marking someone out as something yeah. special and quite often as we'll see later on having both a, a rulership or power role but also religious role quite often so some of these early psychological ones seem to be the headgear of possibly religious figures so the interesting one is going back 11,000 years and I'm not going to call this a crown, but back to the Mesolithic and a site called Star Car in England, mm. where we've got these skull headdresses, antler headdresses. So you've got skulls with little eyes sort of cut out through them, clearly worn in some kind of ceremony, possibly as a religious person. We don't really know. But again, it's sort of something that you put on someone's head to mark them out as special or different. I'm loving this. I think that's, <laughs> to me, that's the sort of origin. The ones that I used to actually, as a child, get slightly obsessed with, it's, of course, ancient Egypt. 
And there we go back to the early dynastic period, so 3000 BC. So we're talking 5000 years ago, really. So right from the start of the earliest dynasties, we have crowns appearing. And they have a quite a complex, different set of crowns that we know quite a lot about, because there's a lot of artwork, statues, you know, wall arts and figures where we can see how these crowns are being worn. And they are worn by the rulers, but also by deities. So gods are wearing crowns and mm. then they can be associated with the rulers and people who've got special roles in religious ceremonies. So again, like those possible antler ones. It's a great place if you're interested in millinery, as I am, is to go and look at the friezes in ancient Egypt, as I did earlier this year, because if you were a pharaoh, that hat was sensational. Yes. So good. I mean, not practical. No. But it wasn't meant to be, I suppose. It was supposed to say, I'm the boss, right? It's symbolising something. It's yeah. telling a message. And it's quite interesting, because I also think, I suppose, we're so used to being able to recognise people. And we know we've got photos and pictures, and you know we know what someone looks like. But I guess 5,000 years ago, somebody arrived yeah, you in your village. Know. You need to know what they are and who they are. Yes. So it's marking them out. The other thing is they look great iconographically. Yeah. You look at the frieze, which is telling you what you need to know about the, you know, credentials yeah. of a dynasty or something, and the hat tells you an awful lot. There's a yes. lot of the work. Absolutely. And with the Egyptian ones, it's really interesting because they have got a very specific message. So you've got these four main crowns. So you've got the red crown or the deshret, and that symbolizes Lower Egypt, which is actually the northern part around the Nile Delta. It's also worn by the cobra goddess called Vajet. So the cobra goddess was actually the protector of Lower Egypt. So you have both a pharaoh and this goddess wearing this particular red crown. So that's for Lower Egypt. And then for Upper Egypt, so the southern part, you've got the white crown, and that's called Hedjet. And that's also worn by Nekbet, who's the vulture goddess. Huh. So you have deities attached to them who, who then also protect that kingdom. And the pharaoh, the ruler of that particular part of the country, would also be wearing this crown. But when these two kingdoms become unified, you then have the double crown. So you have essentially one inside the other. Yeah. So the white and the red crown together. And that signifies control over all of Egypt. So now you, you know by seeing this person that they're fully in charge. There's also a blue crown called the Kepresh, which is often worn going into war by the pharaohs. So it's much more a military context. Mm. There's lots so of... funny, isn't it? Blue. It's not a very military colour, <laughs> is it, really? Well, <laughs> Royal Air Force. Sorry, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they do, as you mentioned, sort of different hats and things. They've got all sorts of other headdresses as well that clearly have a lot of symbolism. So, for example, the one called the Nemes or Nims worn by Tutankhamun, that sort of very well-known image of Tutankhamun with this elaborate oh, yes. headdress, headdress that everyone will sort of recognise. Diadems as well, which we'll get into more in a moment. Interestingly... We've never found archaeologically a single one of these crowns. So there's a lot of imagery of them, but we've mm. never found any. They're fragile objects, do you think? Probably. So they seem so, so we don't know what they're made of. They could be made of fabric, leather, papyrus, anything like that. And probably not metal or, you know, anything else heavy. Or they could be perhaps they're passed on, so quite often they're passed on and reused over time, or destroyed. There's an interesting option. thing, is it? Because the bigger the hat, the more important the person. But the materials it's made of would probably have to be lighter and less durable to, for it to be wearable. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Some, although quite modern recent crowns are exceptionally uncomfortable and heavy, I think, because well, they obviously only ceremonial. So I was a page. Late queen. Yes, I was a page to the late queen, and I remember in 1977 it was the state opening of parliament, and 
you know, they put the crown on and she'd just come back from a tour of somewhere because it was the Silver Jubilee year. And she said, this is just so heavy and uncomfortable. But going back to how we got to, so we got ancient Egypt, but how do we get to those crowns and all of that? And it seems like the earliest ones, certainly that we can trace back to us, go back to some early headgear from ancient Near East, Archimenid Empire, 550 to 330 BC, for example, have very specific headgear, more like turbans, actually, but they've got very strict control over what the king was allowed to do, how to tie it. And noblemen had sort of special different ones, but tied differently. And then you have the diadem. So it really starts with diadem. What is a diadem? I've never really worked oh. it out. Oh, go on, go on. Well, I think I know. Okay. I think it doesn't go all the way around. Is that right? Well, so technically the definition is from a Latin source that it is essentially a cloth band worn around the head as a sign of royalty. It's a Latin definition of oh. it. But also one of the meanings is actually crown. So the oh. crown comes from diadems. But I, I think see. now today we, that's how we would classify it the in thing that the way. The Queen wore, which wasn't a crown, but when had all the diamonds, and that was called the Royal Diadem, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, so yeah. I think that's definitely the modern one, but originally this, that's how it starts out. And I will um, add, actually, that modern diadems look more like tiaras when yeah. you look them up. So they link to that. Mm, yeah. yeah. But earlier on, these are the ones that are essentially like crowns, but they come from, probably more from wreaths and garlands that people wore on their heads. They're known from the Mycenaeans in Greece, Greek gods were depicted with them. And that's quite interesting, this link to the gods again that we had in Egypt as well. And rulers, Greek rulers then start to be depicted with the same wreaths made of gold. So that's where you get the bling started to come in as well. So not plants. So they are essentially using them, especially in religious ceremonies. So it seems like they're trying to associate themselves with these holy deities. And we then start to move on quite quickly. Macedonian kings use them. And again, this wreath then starts to become called a diadem, is a symbol of the divine monarchy. So you have that religious and power association both together. Alexander the Great starts to wear one as a symbol of his royal power as well. So this sort of headgear at that point in Europe especially becomes very much established. And the Ptolemaic rulers of Egypt, again, continue to wear different types, including ones with sunray symbols. And that sort of idea of the spiked crown that you would draw as a child, if you asked to draw a crown, you'd draw the little spikes, that comes from these sunray symbols that we start mm -hmm. to see later on, which goes right back to the Ptolemaic period. And again, in Judea, the symbol of a royal power again becomes this diadem. And it's thought that the crown of thorns yeah. that oh, yes. Jesus was given to wear was essentially a parody of that. And um, I mean, if we go into eventually the Romans become big users of, of diadems uh, as well, but not initially. Initially, they weren't uh, accepting the crown or the wreath as a political symbol until the fourth century. That's the point where this, the diadem especially, start being decorated with things like diamonds. That's where your bling comes in, I think, really, as a symbol of imperial power. From that point into late antiquity, Langobards and Germanic tribes use an iron diadem or sort of hoop mm. decorated with gold plates and precious gems. Mm. And that leads Great into German. the Middle Ages. Yes. So that's essentially all the, the sort of origin points. And in early medieval Europe, you do have an interesting one where 
there are some, not so much that religious power, although they're worn in religious ceremonies as well, but you also have helmets. So you have that, you're talking about the Egyptian warrior, blue yes. crown early on. You've got various kings, for example, Edward the Confessor's seal shows him in a helmet with an ornamental frame. So the helmet is more that sort of warrior power leadership in a military role as well. That's interesting. I mean, you with the crowns of our... There are crown jewels that it's a metal structure to put precious stones on. But the cap of maintenance, and it says this velvet cap, that's the actual head covering, I think, is it? So yeah. it's like the two things have become separate and one's got very blingy and the other one hasn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's starting at that point. And now there are only two states in Europe that use the crown or impose the crown in the course of a religious ceremony of consecration. Do you know what two states? Us. Yes. And the other one? Liechtenstein. Spain? <laughs> no. Spain. No. The Vatican. Oh, uh, of course. Yes. The triple yes. tiara. Yeah. They're the only two. So all of the countries have abolished. Well, I got the right size. Yeah, Liechtenstein and the Vatican. True. <laughs> it's the right sort of idea, really. But they call the papal crown the triple tiara. They call it Do that. they? There's three crowns. Yeah, on a sort of big mitre sort of thing. Yeah. It's interesting. Do you want to know my favourite fact? Yes, yes, please. So not so much of the physical crown but more the concept of the crown oh. so where do you go from this actual object to the idea that we talk about the crown and what the crown means the definition when you say you know this belongs to the crown or the so i try to look into that so this is this idea that it develops as a separation of the physical object and essentially the property of a kingdom or a monarch yeah there isn't a clear point where that happens, but it's in the sort of medieval period, really, where we start to talk about the crowns. So you have the crown of England, and it extends to Scotland and Ireland, and then overseas territories later on. You have many distinct crowns, but there isn't actually a single proper definition of what the crown actually is. So nobody can quite agree on it, and different legal historians as well have tried to define it's it. Interesting. So... Most of them essentially agree that it's a bit of an abstract concept, but it seems to be essentially a combination of the monarch and the government, essentially. So it's a sort of, it's both things, but it doesn't really defined mm. as one or the other. It's a sovereign court. It's a sovereign power. It's a sovereign power, yes, but yeah. sort of the actual definition oh, of I it see, is, yes. is really unclear what that means or what it really is. Well, like a crown court. Or yes. do you know what? Sub-post offices are sub to the crown offices. And so the main post office in a district returns the crown yeah. office. Yeah, I see. And I suppose it connotes that this has the authority of the sovereign and government, right? Yeah, so it's, it's, it is that combination, I think. But there's no proper legal definition of it at all. So it means sort of the king or state or government or bit Something. of all of it, essentially. So remember if I talked about treasure, if you find treasure in the ground, that belongs to the crown. The crown. It doesn't yeah. belong to the king, it doesn't belong to the country, it belongs to the crown institution the yeah. power the authority kind of all of it i thought that was um, very interesting you've got a baby crown coronet <laughs> yes i've never worn it in anger have you tried it on there <laughs> i have tried Did it you on. wear it morris dancing Charles? <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't know if there is a king morris dancer but i suppose there's an aspiration <laughs> i know the peers didn't get invited to this last coronation it's probably not going to happen again is it but if you had been mm. do you what do you go to like the coronet guy and get it fixed <laughs> well i'd had to do, it was rather small i have a large head yeah. so it sort of bounced around on top uh the one time i, I probably put it on my head a couple of times when i'm in the and what do you get if you're in what's it look like 
five. Well, I don't know, actually. It looks like a crown with pointy bits, but the symbol, I think... Do you get balls? Yeah, I think that's balls. And Dukes uh, get strawberry leaves, don't they? Yes, and Marxes get something else. What's it made of? It's not gold. It's a golden coloured material. It could well be a brass type thing. Very good. Oh, we could talk about this forever. So but we've got to move on. It leads in. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Does it lead on to oh, yours? Totally leads Nicely. Yeah. So your topic, which, shall we agree on the pronunciation? Is it cephalophores, do you think? I would say cephalophore. Cephalophore. But most people say cephalophore. Mm. And I'm not doing this just to be awkward, what I am. <laughs> it's because in Greek, kephale, you would say, which means head. It comes with two Greek words, and it means to bear or carry a head. And it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's a sort of genus of saint. There are a host of saints who are cephalophores, and they are noted through iconography and also through legend of being people who carried their heads. It is a post-beheaded saint carrying his or her head for the purposes of displaying either the triumph over death or to give a powerful homiletic energy to their preaching as they go, or to establish the right of a certain place to be associated with a certain saint when that right needs to be established. You remember a little while ago, we were speaking about the Furta Sacra, the sacred crimes, the holy crimes, whereby relics were stolen, but by the mere oh, fact yes. of them being stolen yes. was a sign that, in fact, it was God's will that they should be, because if God did not will for them to be stolen, they would not have been stolen. So sometimes you needed to explain why a saint's relics were not in the place they originally were. Well, I saw last week on social media a pastor in America had been caught out stealing $2 million from his parishioners, which he had invested in cryptocurrency. Oh. And his excuse was that the Lord had asked him to do it. And if the Lord tells you to do it, of course you naturally would. <laughs> I mean, the most famous one, of course, is Saint-Denis. The hagiography is common because he's sometimes confused with Dionysius the Areopagite. Don't get confused with Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. It's easy to do, I know, but St. Denis of Paris. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. Third century Bishop of Paris, often in fights with what we would call Druids, for example. And anyway, the Druids and he fell out significantly and they beheaded him, whereupon he picked up his head and then walked from Montmartre. What does that mean? Well, the legend says it's the Mount of Martyrs. There's actually a dispute about what it really, the origin of that name is, the Mount of the Martyrs. And there established his supremacy over his juridic post. Death could not stop him, okay? So he picked up his head and he walked. And that marked out the sacred space. And it would pick a place that was a place of prestige. Da, 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 da. And so that's quite a common thing. You see that quite often in the stories. That come. There are about 150 cephalophores in France alone. It was a big thing. Where does it come from? Well, interesting. Often these track back to an interesting 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople called John Chrysostom, John the Golden Mouth, a famous preacher and a great churchman, one of the early fathers. In one of his commentaries, he said that the severed head of a martyr spoke more eloquently than any words he could preach because the expansion of the early church, Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs, 
is the seed of the church. The expansion of the early church happened through martyrdom, people showing through their willingness to lay down their lives that there was a life beyond this life that Jesus represented and salvation offered to all who would follow them. So if you're going to preach that sermon, put your money where your mouth is, right? So martyrdom was a big thing, and the power of martyrdom was that it did preach that message. There's also a belief that it was much as soldiers would show each other their wounds or their generals their wounds as a sign of their battle honours, so you would show your severed head to Christ. So you have animation there, but also this notion of preaching homiletic. So those two ideas kind of bubble up in legend and popular culture as literally that having someone being decapitated, picking up their head and the head still preaching. Aristotle wrote against this. Aristotle wrote that it would be impossible for someone whose head had been severed, for they would not have the use of lung and windpipe to produce the necessary current to vocalise. So he knew already that it was nonsense. But that's not helpful for the purposes of legend, right? In legend, you need to have these... The Green Knight, Sir Gawain in the Green Knight, of course, is another example there. Dante's Inferno, in the eighth circle of hell they encounter some bloke called, I think it's Bernardo or Bernardino, who was a troubadour, friend of yours, Henry Curthose. Oh, yes. Henry I, right? Well, Henry I's brother was called Robert Curthose. Well, I'm thinking of Henry in this case. And uh, there was this guy got into trouble for turning him against his son. Okay. So that makes sense. I know it's your period, not yeah, mine. No, and so Dante, for betrayal, mm. which was the worst in him, put him in the eighth circle of hell. And there they encounter him. He's holding up his own severed head and the severed head is talking. So after this note of the Catholic Four, after that got a bit of traction, well, they started looking for other examples of it, of course. The Apostle Paul, famously beheaded, AD 64, 65, the legend goes that he was beheaded and his head fell to the ground and pronounced the name Jesus Christ 50 times before it was thrown into a ditch, whereupon it was reunited with his body and screwed itself back on. It went round and round and round until it was firmly fixed to the body of the apostle. Interestingly, when Charles I was beheaded, the anniversary of that fell only the other day, they reattached the head, do you remember? Mm. So he could lie, I think, be recognised as the king. It's a powerful thing. Death is not the end here. You can be decapitated and yet mm. still have a life. Some fine examples of Kepler's force. England has two that I'm particularly fond of. Dorset's only Kepler Four. St. Aud the Virgin. Do you know about her? No. Well, she was very good. St. Aud the Virgin. Normally, women get beheaded because they elect a life of chastity in spite of the dynastic wishes of their royal parents to marry somebody they don't want to do. Well, similar sort of scenario happened with Aud the Virgin. Her husband went away on war. When she came back, she had a big fight with her mother-in-law and she had these terrible chest pains. And her mother-in-law, in order to soothe the breast pains, put two soft cheeses on her chest. And then when her husband returned, he said, your wife is pregnant. He said, no, it can't be. She would be faithful. She would be faithful. He said, go and feel under the bedclothes. And he fell under the bedclothes and felt her moist breasts Yes. and thought that that was because mm. she was lactating. No, 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 soft cheese, beheaded her on the mm. spot. But anyway, she picked up her head and walked to, I think it was Holstead or somewhere, I can't remember, ever since being the patron saint of soft cheese. My favourite <laughs> one is... slightly <laughs> disturbing, I think. But. Well, I mean, what you're hearing is a very complicated coming together of a mixture of superstition and hagiography and the necessity of sacralizing a place and also patriarchal ideas about the status of women. All these things come together in these stories. They're very yes. potent they and very a lot. Yeah. vivid and, yeah. you know, ghoulish in a way, I think. St. Tuzi, 
is a great favourite of mine. Now, she was the daughter of a sub-king. And also, sub-king, sub-queen was called, interestingly, Wilbur. But spelt W-I-L-B-A. But there right. you go. Yes. Apropos the right. Yes. And um, she was brought up by her two aunts, Edith of Aylesbury and Edberger of Bicester. They were abbesses. Very significant thing to be in England in that time. I think we talked about the 7th century, something like that. Mm. And anyway, one day she was sent off to a convent in Northumbria. And very unfortunately, a gust of wind blew her into a river. And she was swept away and lost. And after a while, Edith and the mother of the convent prayed for her safe return and she emerged out of the water. So that was all right. So she's already showing this power to overcome the power of flood, as it were. And then she was betrothed to the king of Essex and she married the king of Essex. And then she decided to have a chaste life anyway. Now, he rather took that in good heart, actually said, okay, go off and found a convent. And she did found a convent near Clacton, actually, a place called St Osseth, as it was known now. And then there was a marauding band of pirates. They came up to Clacton and they went beyond it. And they went to St Osseth and they found her and they said, right, you're going to be our captain. She said, no, thank you. So they beheaded her. What did she do? She picked up her head and she took it back home and the priory of St Osseth is known as Toosey. Toosey Priory, by the way, was the home of Somerset de Cher, who was the father-in-law of Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg and the grandfather of Sir Lawrence Clark Baronet, the Olympic 110-metre hurdler. Yes, so well, that's, a, that's a double rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. But my favourite fact in all this, and the reason why it's germane to our crown thing, was there was a major problem in the iconography because if you have a beheaded saint, what do all saints have? Well, they've got a complete body, Halos. haven't they? Well, oh, Halos. yes. But if you've got a beheaded saint... Where does the halo go? Mm. And if you look at Saint-Denis, it's very complicated. In some depictions of Saint-Denis, the halo is around the severed head. And quite often it's actually around the stump where the head would have been. So you'll have this stump gouting blood and a halo around that and the head held up sort of talking no, away. that doesn't work. Sometimes you'll get, they, they get both. They get right. two heads. If you look at the city of Krefeld in Germany, the city famously of silk and satins, that has Saint-Denis in its crest, and he's got two halos, one round his severed head and one round his stump. Major, major dispute in the Middle Ages because the Abbey of Saint-Denis, which he founded, said they had the head, but also the clergy of the Cathedral of Notre-Dame said they had the head too. So there was a huge, we were talking the other week, weren't we, about uh, the value mm. of relics and the competition to have them. So it was said that the clergy of Notre-Dame had the crown of his head because his head was chopped off in two goes. So they got first slice, as it right. were. Yes. And then uh, Saint-Denis got the main slice. And so in some depictions at Amiens Cathedral, you will see that he's holding not his head, but his crown, because they were of the party mm. of Notre Dame. So think carefully, right? Yes. What, where you're going to put your halo <laughs> on the head that has been severed from the body of the saint. That is a problem I hadn't thought of. No, That's same. I've never, never pondered that. I'm just keeping me awake tonight. But, you know, now, whenever you see a depiction in religious art of a Kefla for, you will be looking to see what they've done, how yes. they've solved the halo yeah. problem. Maybe yes. it's a problem that can't be solved. Maybe it's a paradox which sends us, in fact, into the eternal verities of the life beyond this one which cannot be made to make sense in this life. We should just have that now, the halo problem. Let's just the halo problem. The halo should be a halo new effect. concept. Yes. force. <laughs> Plenty of them too. Excellent. Well, thank you very no, much for that. Oh, you're welcome. Much to ponder. So, second episode of season four. Mm -hmm. And 
Yes, you did win the first one, Charles. That doesn't mean that this series right, is going to be go all on yours. About it at all. You <laughs> do. Do you say go on about it for, rich, for richness? Yeah. To have so let's see. Word. The disembodied voice is going to cheese. Cheesy. Soft cheese. Saying, <laughs> bring a million into the pan. Perhaps this win will help Richard pull ahead. Ah. Kefla fours this week. Although oh, the chat beforehand did almost put me off, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> about Kefla fours? No, about the judging. Oh yeah. Well, now look, I'm merely floating what is in the mind of our listeners. I'm not making any <laughs> accusations here. Of course. And I just think it's important that transparency attends all our and your deliberations, especially. Too right, too right. Thanks very much. Up, well done, Congrats. Richard. There we go. No, well don't, I, don't want, I, don't want, I want you back up here for the principle. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Transparency. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very happy to congratulate you because it was extremely good. Yes. On the head carrying. Yes. Thank you. Mm. Very good. So actually, we've also got to reveal to our listeners that next week's episode is going to be a little bit different. Yes. Because we are going to be sharing a recording from our first ever live show that we just did at the Royal and Durngate Theatre in Northampton on Saturday the 10th of February. It's brilliant, wasn't it? Yes. Well, it's a first of, hopefully, a first of many. I can't think of there ever being a hotter ticket in Northampton than a ticket <laughs> to the Rabbit Hole. Well, hang on. Like there was the two shows either side of us. What was it? Luther Van Dross tribute band <laughs> and the Mousetrap 70th anniversary <laughs> tour. <laughs> we were the meat in that sandwich. Yes, we really yeah. were. We can reveal the topics that we talked about then that we're going to be sharing next week. Charles, yours was Thomas Beckett's. Yes. Yeah, great Northampton lad. Yes. Mine. Bed. Another Northampton person, Elf Kifu. Elf Kifu. And Richard, the Northamptonshire boot and shoe industry. Yeah, perfect. Excellent. It was fun. So that's it for this week. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please do subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. You can also send us an email if you like, especially if you'd like to suggest a new topic for us to fall into. That's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. So, in the words from Richard Adams' Watership Down, you want to run, I'll run with you. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you.